0: This is The Science of Sex, a podcast about the ins and outs of the latest research about everyone's favorite topic. Hosted by Dr. Jana, a sex researcher and professor of human sexuality at NYU, and Joe Partavilla, the guy who's a fan of sex. Here's Dr. Jana and Joe. This is episode 25 of The Science of Sex. Hi Dr. Jana.
1: Hello, hello. You look refreshed. Oh yeah, so refreshed.
0: Recovered from uh, your week-long jaunt in Austin for South by Southwest, mm-hmm. back yep. to your normal grind of being a professor.
1: Yep, yep, yep.
0: Do you, Are you like one of those sexy professors who all like the students have crushes on?
1: I-, I don't know, you have to ask my students. Oh, okay. How am I supposed to know that? I
0: don't know, maybe you know, you're kind of like self-aware,
1: no? Yeah, but <laughs> you still have to ask my students that. Right. I don't know, everyone I meet thinks that. Oh, okay. Seems to think that, but, right. uh, or suggests that, or asks me that, but I don't know, you have to ask my students.
0: All right, well, if you're not a student of Dr. Jana, you can be by signing up to her Patreon page, right? Because essentially, that's sort of like going to school without paying NYU. I
1: suppose. Yeah, so yeah. What,
0: what, do you, what kind of stuff can you learn from being a member on the Patreon page?
1: All the stuff that I share with sex science research that comes out on a weekly basis and keep track of the podcast and also you can get some rewards and perks and that's
0: something the NYU students don't get they don't get any perks that is true
1: they do not get perks like they don't get a dildo they don't get dildos (laughs) they definitely don't get dildos yeah they don't get one-on-one phone call sex education private sex education with dr jana and so on so yeah there's some there's some perks up there patreon.com slash dr jana
0: the science of sex foreplay. Dr. John, I know sometimes we do get a little personal outside of the Again,
1: are we gonna get personal again? Wow, what, no, what do you want from me now?
0: All, all I'm saying is sometimes <laughs> we get personal. I it, okay, it, it didn't okay. mean that we were going to get personal, but sometimes right. we do. Uh huh. Anyway, so let's get personal. Uh <laughs> you've heard of the term ghosting. Yes. And I know you're not you're not fond of that.
1: I'm definitely not fond of ghosting, yes. Yeah,
0: because you are all about being open and honest, and if you don't like a person or don't want to date a person anymore, you will come out and say, hey, listen, I don't like you anymore kind of thing.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's usually a better policy to communicate what we want and not, not want by expressing words and not just disappearing. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it depends on the circumstances to mm-hmm. some extent, obviously, and especially to what extent you've already communicated and you know how much prior interactions there were. You know, sometimes might be an appropriate course of action, but most of the time, especially with someone that you have at least somewhat of a significant history, mm. I think it's probably not the best idea.
0: All right. So that's like one of those fancy dating terms that people uh-huh. don't want to throw around anymore. Uh-huh. So I've got a new one, a relatively new one. Okay. Okay. It's called me Mosting. Mosting? Yeah.
1: M-O-S-T-I-N-G? <laughs>
0: yeah. It's not as cool as ghosting. <laughs> so basically, it's someone who compliments and flatters someone and then all of a sudden disappears. Uh huh. So mosting is ghosting,
1: preceded by like this super effusive, "Oh my God, you're the best thing yes. ever!" Like and a love bomb. Yeah. So uh-huh.
0: basically, you've lit a love <laughs> bomb and ran.
1: Oh my God, that happened to me. Really? Yeah. Last year, it totally happened to me in, with the, with this with the same guy several times. He kept doing whatever this fluff bomb is over text, building it up, building it up. Like, you're amazing. I don't want to live without you, blah, 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 blah. And then we would see each other, we'd have a night together, and then he would disappear for like two months. No word, no word, like zero. And then he would start building it again. What? (laughs) And he did that like four times, and each time having some sort of an excuse like, I don't know, I got got scared that I was going to get hurt because you are... So I don't Amazing. know. Amazing, sure. Yeah. And- I bet
0: you hear that a lot. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but no. But I will say, you know, you are you don't you are no lack of bullshit though. So you never called this guy out after the second or third. I bill did. Like, hey, I did, dude. What's going on? I did.
1: I called him out every time, but he was so convincing each time. Wow. And I was like, okay, I'll give you another chance, sure. And then after. I think the, the fourth, fourth time the fourth most. I was like, okay, I'm really done. After the second time I stopped believing mm. the most thing part, but I was like, okay, you want to, you want to meet up again for another really fun night? Sure. Okay.
0: <laughs> Any explanation as to what that's all about? Because ghosting you get because they're just, they're afraid of, or they of, just don't want
1: to deal of, with wanna it. Deal with it's it. Awkward but but mosting
0: it seems like they are, there is some sort of I don't want to say love but fondness for a person that you're willing to go above and beyond and tell them how awesome they are, but then to run away seems I'm,
1: odd. I, I don't think there's any research on mm. this no, issue.
0: No, mosting PhDs <laughs> out there. No, uh,
1: that would be a interesting potential okay. future study for anybody out there interested in this. I think if you want to like do some psychoanalysis or whatever, you might say that some of that might be due to people really enjoying the intensity, Mm -hmm. right? That kind of interaction, the the buildup of that fluff bomb or love (laughs) bomb or whatever you want to call it, creates, it does create an an increased level of closeness and intimacy and passion. And and so on one hand, people may just be enjoying that, Mm -hmm. creating that and consummating that for for a little bit, for a night, but they don't actually have any long-term intentions to continue that. It might be some perverse... (laughs) <laughs> I don't know, maybe for, and for some people, yeah. it might be some kind of perverse manipulation of some sort. The person that they're doing that to wouldn't otherwise be with them or want to be with them. So it's kind of, it's a very kind of straightforward manipulation. Yeah. That was not the case with this guy. I totally would have had those evenings with him without all the fluff. I think maybe for some people it is. I don't know. What do you think? I
0: I do get the idea of why people would go for like Mm -hmm. you accepting you know four or five times with this guy being because I can imagine it's an ego boost that this guy is going above and beyond to describe what an amazing person you are, Mm -hmm. whether it's physically or or mentally Mm. or any spiritually. But then so that I get the person on the receiving end, I could see kind of falling for. But on the other end, it almost seems very sinister like you're, you're doing all this maybe you're lying maybe mm-hmm. all these love bombs are bullshit <laughs> and you're just doing it to get someone in bed and then all of a sudden I'm gonna go but it seems like it's a lot of work to get someone in
1: bed yeah I know and, and the fact that some people will do it even when that is not required when you can get this person to have sex with you without all of that and yeah. you're still doing it that to me suggests that there is some additional motivation and i'm not entirely sure what it is i mean at the end the last time i chatted with that guy with the most yeah with the monster <laughs> i was like dude if you actually believe these things that you're saying that this time it's gonna because each time he was like i'm not gonna do this again i'm not gonna <laughs> disappear on you again because a couple of times there were like things like oh i started dating someone else and so whatever and and so he would have these excuses and he'd be like no this time i'm really not gonna do this and i was like dude if you believe this yourself then you're delusional like you're actively delusional because clearly this is a pattern that you're just gonna keep repeating like all
0: right so there wasn't sinister there he was definitely into you i
1: I, like i have no idea it's it's hard for me to understand
0: all right well i have some hardcore sex science i want to talk to you about this was huge news you ready because i know usually leave it up to you to be the sex scientist okay but did you happen to go on social media and and see the stories about the male birth control pill i did not so apparently male birth control is right around the corner a new small study presented in Chicago, found an experimental drug called DMAU, and they're saying it's both safe and effective. So in the month-long trial involving 83 men, the drug was found to lower hormone levels without signs of testosterone deficiency or excess. That's key. Because okay. I think guys will, you know, they'll, they'll take the risk of, you know, making sure that their sperm's not working, but they want to make sure the rest is firing on all sure. cylinders. Now, the study author said that there was marked suppression of testosterone and of two hormones necessary for a man to produce sperm for those who took 400 milligrams of DMAU, the highest dose. Now, more research is needed, obviously, mm-hmm. but this is a huge step forward because we've been hearing about the male <laughs> pill for a long time, but to see that there's actual clinical studies going on, it's a that's a huge step forward.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good, important step forward. <laughs> yeah? I mean, I'm all for providing more options and putting some of that responsibility on men.
0: All right, so let's hop into your time-traveling DeLorean <laughs> and say maybe 10 years from now, uh-huh. this male pill is working. Uh-huh. Do you see it becoming a mainstream alternative to birth control. Do you see a lot of men trying this? Just think because I, I know, you, so. because you know they're inside the inner workings of a guy. <laughs> do you think they'd be willing to, to well, you know, you know most guys, I'll let the girl do, take care of that on her end. Yeah, you I, know?
1: I think it might be a slow-ish process mm. and, I don't think everybody's going to be like, "Oh my god, amazing. Let's ditch <laughs> all other m- forms of birth control <laughs> yeah. and and start taking this." But I think more and more, you know, men are going to be using that option and it's partly on women as well to kind of push their mm-hmm. their partners, their male partners to go for this. I mean, it's it's a good thing because it's Sort of easily reversible, right? You stop taking the pill and you become fertile again, as opposed to things like vasectomy, which is at this point kind of the only. Way for men to really take take control aside from condoms, but yeah. anything that's more long lasting is uh, it requires this kind of bit drastic for some people. Surgery yeah. that requires cutting some parts down yeah. there. I mean, vasectomies are re- reversible too, yeah. and most men who've had them, the vast majority of men who've had them, are pretty happy with them. But I think offering something that is reversible as long as it doesn't have side effects that would be a good thing and it will become maybe not the number 1 birth control <laughs> no. method actually ever but i think yeah a substantial at least minority of men will opt for that
0: do you know who i see this being a huge market for who? professional athletes and actors because they are some, you know, are promiscuous a bit, and and they do feel <laughs> that they can be entrapped by a woman who wants to, mm, you know, take mm-hmm. you know, be part of their life and have a child with them. Sure. These these guys, <laughs> I could see, you know, NFL NBA players taking this by the bucket load to make sure that you know they don't get any woman pregnant when, while they're on the road, whether in Cleveland or Milwaukee or something like that.
1: I and mean, hopefully, they're also using condoms when doing that. But well, yeah, 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 you would
0: hope. But you you do hear a lot about we these professional hear, athletes impregnating yes. women all across the. board globe so that i mean that could be the first thing in terms of the advertising are you a professional athlete don't want to use condoms and don't want to get women pregnant we now have dmau
1: why don't you go offer this the pr to uh, your PR services to the pill hey listen dmau
0: call me anytime i'm not gonna take it i don't have to worry about that
1: but still hey why don't you have to worry about it well i'm in a long-term relationship and we're all good but but so she takes care of it. She takes care of business. Uh huh. Yeah. And why wouldn't you take care of business instead of her? Oh, listen! Don't we have to get no, to no, no, our no, guest? No, 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 no. <laughs> no I'm, I'm serious.
0: Uh, no, it just uh, sort of it it began that way, and mm-hmm. it's continued that way that she takes care of it. You know. Uh
1: huh. And what if she said, "I think I'm done with however it is that she takes care of it." What if she's like, "I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore." And Now it's your turn. I mean,
0: I would not a vasectomy would not be out of the question, but also Mm -hmm. the DMAU. uh, Yeah, would you consider the DMAU? Sure, why not? It seems pretty easy. I mean, as long as there's no side effects, like you said, like the low T or
1: anything like that. Sure. Are you happy that we got Uh, personal air? I'm happy. Yes, that you would be one of the people this could be marketed to.
0: Me and professional athletes.
1: Yes, (laughs) Joe. All
0: right, let's get going. The science of sex goes deeper.
1: In 2016, Dr. Michael Bailey and colleagues wrote a 57-page paper for this prestigious journal called Psychological Science in the Public Interest that was titled Sexual Orientation, Controversy, and Science. In this paper, they reviewed the state of knowledge regarding what sexual orientation is, what causes it, the differences in how it gets expressed over time and culture. But their second goal in the paper was, as they write, less scientific and more analytical. It was to criticize and improve common but incorrect reasoning in this domain. We've talked about sexual orientation in uh, the past on mm-hmm. um, this podcast, talked about mostly straight uh, men. Before that, we talked to Dr. Kazi Rahman about the biology of, of sexual orientation. And I think it's really important to maybe talk about sort of the, the topic and studying the topic itself and the meaning that that has, why we're doing it. What are the implications of that are for how we think? treat sexual orientation in our cultures and the, the laws that we write regarding sexual orientation and some of the controversies around that
0: oh so this is like a sociological episode as well, opposed to scientific
1: sort of it's like the sociology of science around this topic okay in a way
0: cool that's loaded all right <laughs>
1: A little bit. (laughs) Yeah. So we have Dr. Michael Bailey on the show. He earned his PhD at the University of Texas at Austin in 1989, then started teaching at Northwestern University where he has been ever since. His main area of study has been the causes, development and expression of human sexual orientation. And he's recently been expanding his research into paraphilias or unusual, uncommon sexual interests, at least some of which, he argues, are types of sexual orientation. Dr. Michael Bailey, welcome to the Science of Sex podcast.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Okay, so most people who study sexual orientation, at least as far as I know, seem to be non-straight, gay, bi, something, something other than straight. But from what I know about you, you're pretty straight, right?
2: I am very straight. (laughs) Very straight.
1: (laughs) So how did you end up studying this topic, if it it was not me-search?
2: Yeah, so my story is that in uh, 1984, I was in graduate school at the University of Texas at Austin. We did a unit on sexual orientation, and around that time, uh, a paper came out that was published in Science Magazine about a theory that gay men's brains were feminized early in development, And it it just was very interesting, and and I was kind of flailing for a dissertation topic, and my advisor said, why don't you see if you can study something about this theory? And I did it, and I've just never left that area of research since.
1: Why'd you like it so much?
2: First, I think it's just a fascinating topic, and virtually everybody agrees with that, (laughs) and when they when people say they're not interested in the topic i think that they're either lying or dull uh and <laughs> and the other reason is that i enjoyed working with gay and lesbian people they were both very interested in the topic themselves Obviously. and remember this was uh in the mid 80s when uh gay rights were not nearly as advanced mm. as they are now and a lot of them thought that they were doing good things for gay and lesbian people.
0: Well, you know, Dr. Bailey, you sound like a nice guy. Dr. Jana warned me that you're like this controversial figure, <laughs> and you seem like a sweet fella.
2: I, I think I'm very misunderstood. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, my first impressions, Doc, you seem like a nice guy.
2: Well, thank you. I, I think that uh, I do have a tendency to say what I think, and maybe we'll Uh, get to a topic, uh, and I can scandalize you. (laughs) Good.
1: Yeah, I definitely think we we shouldn't leave this interview without at least one controversy. Uh, Good. (laughs) Maybe in a a little bit. Sure, sure. We'll take our time. not not right away. Mm
0: -hmm. Baby steps.
1: (laughs) Okay, so before we sort of delve into the topic so that we're all on the same page uh, as to what sexual orientation is, like how we define sexual orientation, and some of the ways we measure sexual orientation so that we can talk about it.
2: Yeah, so I believe... Sexual orientation is one's degree of relative attraction to men or women for both genders. The most common way to measure sexual orientation is simply to ask them. Uh, And that's uh, certainly the easiest way to measure sexual orientation. But there are some populations where it might give misleading results. For example, adolescent males who are coming out uh, as gay eventually, they often go through a stage where they will call themselves bisexual and they will say that they're attracted to both males and females. But if you ask them when they're completely out, well, were you really attracted to women? They will typically say no. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think one of the most potentially revealing measures that one can have is to assess genital arousal to different kinds of erotic stimuli. So basically, we show movies of two men having sex or of two women having sex, and we measure the degree to which men get erections while watching them.
1: So you show porn to men in the lab?
2: That's right. Mm -hmm. And we've done it to women as well. But for men, it's, it's a very good measure of what their sexual orientation is. And sometimes men's responses don't match what they tell you. Uh, We've had a couple of people uh, who said that they were straight, and they came to the lab, and they were getting erections to the male stimuli much more than to the female Mm.
0: stimuli. So they walked in straight and then left gay? Is that what happened? Yeah, we turned them gay. (laughs)
1: You turned them gay.
2: (laughs) So it is possible. (laughs) Well, in follow-up
0: questions
2: to at least one of them, he revealed that, well, yeah, he did have these feelings for men as well. And Mm -hmm. so this technique actually has been used to study these atypical sexual preferences I talked about before, like Mm -hmm. children and so on. Uh, It's not really been used to find closeted gay people, (laughs)
1: Wasn't this technique or a similar technique once developed in order to detect sort of gay people in the military or something like that? Or do I have that information wrong?
2: You have it right, but perhaps with a misunderstanding. It was developed by the eminent sex researcher Kirk Freund in the Czech Republic. And it was developed to look for men who were faking homosexuality
0: in order to avoid the service. Right, right, right. Oh, right. because the gay men couldn't serve. Serve, right. right. Interesting. And so
1: some people, some men who didn't want to serve for other reasons might might go and say, I'm gay, and right. they wanted to find the right, the, the, the fake <laughs> gay men. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I, I think this is a, a good point to ask you a little bit about the difference between men and women in terms of their sexual orientation. You've You've written and talked extensively about the sex difference in sexual orientation, that, that in some way women's and men's sexual orientations might be fundamentally different. In fact, one of your articles was specifically titled "What Sexual Orientation and Do Women Even Have One, right?
2: <laughs> That's right, yeah. So
1: talk to us a little bit about what we know about gender differences and if your view has evolved on this over time, and if so, how?
2: So I was talking before about how men's patterns of erection to male versus female uh, erotica in the lab is a very good guide to their true feelings. And sometimes it's a better guide than what they tell us on Mm. paper. So we also have studied this in women. You can also measure genital arousal in women, although it's a little less straightforward than with men. With men, you basically just measure how wide their penis gets, very easy to do. We don't do it with our uh, hands, or you know, we we have them. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> uh, we have electronic equipment that does that.
0: Uh, but you basically
1: put a string around the penis and see how much it, how big it gets.
2: That's basically it. Yeah. Right.
0: And if that doesn't work, they bring in Steve to hold on to it and see what happens, <laughs> right?
2: Right, <laughs> right. So, uh, with women, there's a much more complicated instrument called the vaginal photoplethysmograph.
1: Yeah, I know uh, it's a it's a mouthful. Yeah, see that
0: three times fast. Okay. <laughs>
2: yeah. So, vaginal photoplethysmograph. It's basically it's a clear plastic tube about the size of a tampon that a woman inserts inside herself, and it it emits light, but there's also a light sensor that is sensitive to the wavelengths of light that are reflected by vagina as the vagina pools with blood. Both a penile erection and vaginal response, that is lubrication and swelling, they both depend on the same physiological Process, which is called basocongestion, which is blood coming in. Uh, and so the vaginal photoplethysmograph, it looks at color, basically.
1: So the more blood that comes into the vaginal walls, the more different sort of that, that color is.
2: That's right. Anyway, it, it is a valid measure of vaginal changes and also of vaginal arousal. It, it happens when women watch erotica but not when they watch scary movies, for example. So it's not Uh, just
1: any arousal, any physiological arousal. It's specific to sexual arousal.
2: That's right. Mm
1: -hmm. The thing
2: is that women's genital arousal is much less related to their sexual orientation than men's is. So, for example, we studied straight women and lesbians as they watched films of either men or of women doesn't really help to watch a film that has both a man and a woman in it, because if somebody gets aroused, you don't know who they're paying attention to. Mm -hmm. So lesbians did show a bias toward being more genitally aroused when they're watching female porn than male porn, though it's not nearly as large a bias as men show. Whereas heterosexual women were indifferent, that is, there was no difference between their genital arousal to watching two men have sex or their genital arousal to watching two women have sex. And this has been shown over and over and over, and it's not just uh, a a property of genital arousal measures. We've shown the same thing in a brain scanner, as women looked at pictures of Mm -hmm. naked people. It's a thing. As a result i become increasingly challenging, I guess, especially about heterosexual women. Like, how does a heterosexual woman know she's heterosexual? I think men know their sexual orientation because of sexual excitement and especially erections in the presence of real people or erotica or sexual fantasies that excite them. But that's not true for straight women. How do straight women know their sexual orientation? And that's why I asked that question in that article, what is sexual orientation and do women have one? And my views on that question have not really evolved in the sense that nobody has answered that question satisfactorily mm-hmm. to this point.
1: What do you think is sexual orientation for, for women? Or or how can how should we think about because So there's this difference that their brains and bodies don't seem to correspond to their self-labels or, or, or you know, the way they see themselves in terms of their attractions when you ask them. And it's not a very reliable measure, unlike for men. What are some other differences in terms of men's and women's sexual orientation?
2: Women are more likely than men to show something, which I, I, I'm guessing you've covered before sexual fluidity where Mm. over time, sometimes over not a long time, women will fall in love and have sex with a man and then not too long after a woman and and their descriptions of their sexual orientations will often change with that. Mm. I honestly don't think that that happens with men Mm -hmm. (laughs) although, uh, you know, there are people who disagree with me.
1: (laughs) Yes, we did talk to you. Actually, last episode was with uh, Rich Savin williams Oh,
2: yeah, he probably disagreed. Yes.
1: (laughs) But I think everybody would agree that there is more sexual fluidity that we see in women compared to men, so that there is more changes both, short-term, and over long periods of time that happened to women in terms of their sexual orientation than to men?
2: So women have strong sexual preferences. Women are very picky, and the large majority of women are very picky about the gender of the person they <laughs> mm-hmm. want to have sex with, uh, with the, the largest majority certainly being uh, wanting male partners. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these preferences come from somewhere, but I think that they don't, seem to come from the same plate that men's preferences come from, you know one possibility is that they come in part from the narrative that women uh, are brought up and raised in you know that it's just for most it's kind of expected that they will uh partner with a man and have a have and raise family and mm-hmm. so on. There may also be some erotic or sexual aspects of that, but perhaps the the erotic and sexual aspects are not so much focused on the same things that men's are, that is, body parts, you know, it's like, Gay men are really excited by penises. Men are really excited by breasts and vulva. Mm-hmm. and That may not be what it is for women. Maybe it's could be, for example, behavioral, or uh, it could be the aspect of being courted. You know, I'm not... Saying that these are true, I'm speculating wildly. Right, right. I, I, I'm. I think we're at the point where you know that's all we can do. And b- before we can make progress, I think that we need to admit what we don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and I think I'm farther along than some other people
1: <laughs> in admitting that. Yeah. So you think it's less, perhaps, that, that sexual or erotic aspect of women's sexual orientation is less about gendered body parts and more about some other kind of traits? Do you think maybe it's more gender personality traits like assertiveness or dominance? That's another good guess.
2: That is the kind of thing that Mm. I'm thinking of. Yeah. Mm. Again, I don't know. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I um, was talking to a female research assistant in our lab recently about this and several males as well. We're discussing that article you referred to and, uh, you know, I, I was asking her, you know, I tend to ask women who identify as straight, how do you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and and she was saying, you know, she actually had had an experience where she had uh, looked at pictures of this very attractive female personality recently and found herself feeling aroused Hmm. She, and she said but you know I would never do anything <laughs> <laughs>
1: I, I think this is a good place to ask about some of the causes and what we know uh, about that because part of part of your article was summarizing kind of our knowledge the state of the knowledge right now about what causes sexual orientation kind of the the biological uh, or social and non-social factors now I, I don't want to get too deep into that. And you also had Dr. Kazi Rahman on the show a few weeks ago to talk specifically about the genetic and hormonal stuff. So I don't want to get like super bogged down in that, but give us maybe a little summary of what are the different options, the different theories out there, uh, and to what extent they may be true for women versus men. Because what you were saying just now, it may be that for women, their sexual orientation is more driven by social kinds of experiences, as opposed to men's sexual orientation, which might appears to be more driven by some biological factors.
2: That is a possibility for sure, and I think that the causes of human sexual orientation is a fantastically interesting topic, and there's very little we know for sure, even though I, you know, I certainly... I have hunches, and I would bet certain amounts of money, but I I can't say that much has been discovered for sure. One thing that I would uh, bring in that is not exactly causation, but I think it's highly relevant, is the finding that human sexual orientation is pretty strongly correlated with gender nonconformity. This is true uh, starting in childhood And it's also true for adulthood. Homosexual men, and, you know, I I refer, I use the term homosexual just to, as a sexual orientation as opposed to gay, which is an identity. Mm -hmm. But um, starting in childhood, on average, males who will become same-sex attracted tend to be markedly more feminine in various ways compared with men who will become female-attracted. And this includes things like their interests. You know, you get a lot of uh, boys who really don't want to play football, and, uh, and and some of them want to play with Barbies and, and so on. And this is not at all uncommon uh, among uh, males who will become gay men. In fact, it's much more likely that a little boy who wants to wear dresses and even says, wants to be a girl, at least in the past, most of those have grown up to be gay men and not transgender.
1: Mm. There's a whole sort of debate that we're having in our society right now, right? What happens with those very effeminate uh, little boys and kind of uh, masculine little girls and what's going to happen to them and how we should treat them.
2: That's right. Yeah, and I I think that it's everybody who wants to have an opinion on that needs to know some facts. Mm. And one of the facts that is crucial is, at least in the past, children who are extremely cross-gendered, including with gender identity issues, have mostly adjusted to their birth sex. And the males like that have mostly turned into gay men. The females like that have mostly turned into straight women, although a disproportionate percentage, maybe a third of them have come out as non-heterosexual. So that's whether like in childhood and as adults, well, you know, there are stereotypes about gay men and lesbians, and those stereotypes are true, Mm -hmm. at least in in the only sense Mm -hmm. that stereotypes are ever true, which is on average, you know, in terms of interests. Fashion designers are disproportionately gay men, Mm -hmm. and women who work at bike shops, (laughs) and I'm a... Uh, An avid cyclist, as are you, I believe, John, you can see if you agree with me. The women who I've met who work in the bike shops uh, are disproportionately lesbian. Yep. (laughs) So those are the interests. And then you have these uh, superficial behaviors, which is the way people move. I was going for a walk yesterday, and I was watching this young man uh, walk by me. And just by the way he walked and moved his hand, I knew that he's attracted to men. I, I think that's fascinating. I, I did not, you know, run up and...
1: <laughs> ask and get, him, give him a yeah. survey. <laughs>
2: but, but you know what? I, I would bet a million dollars. And uh, then there's also uh, speech patterns. And those have been verified, all of this has been verified uh, using research. My lab has uh, done research on gaydar, and these are all true things. And these are not tiny effects, they're large effects.
1: And as you mentioned, I just want to emphasize that this doesn't mean that all gay men are going to be more sort of feminine in mm -hmm. in their behaviors or, or appearance than all straight men. These are averages.
2: That's exactly right. And it's especially, the exceptions there are most common among, say, gay men, many of whom were typical little boys and men who you can't really tell by superficial observation. Right. I think uh, little boys who want to be girls and men who who give off gestures who that we might call flaming, uh, those are very rare among straight boys and men. Mm-hmm. It's, it's predictive one way and not the
1: other. Not the other so much, right. Yeah. What does this tell us, the gender nonconformity, which, as you said, is true of both men and, to some extent, women being correlated with later sexual orientation? What does this tell us?
2: Well, I think it gives us a couple clues. First of all, I believe it strongly suggests that there are innate causes, at least some, for, of sexual orientation, because these things start very early in childhood, and they are not taught by parents. Right. In fact, uh, parents usually don't like them, especially in boys, at least in the past they right. have
1: they not. they actively discouraged, in fact. That,
2: that's right. And secondly, I think it uh, gives us a hint about um, what the innate uh, causes may be working on. That is, they, they may be influencing the parts of the brain that are gender differentiated. So it is, in some sense, it's feminine to like men sexually because straight women do Mm -hmm. and straight men don't. But there are other ways in which uh,
1: gay men are,
2: Mm -hmm. are feminine and straight women are feminine and similar to each other. One of the ways that I alluded to before has to do with what people like to do in their spare time and what they want to do for a living, which I think it's pretty fascinating that there might be these innate influences on those kinds of things that may develop with the uh, brain parts that affect who you want to have sex with.
1: Mm-hmm. I think at this point nobody in the, in the sex research world would argue that there are clearly some biological, genetic, and hormonal influences on sexual orientation. What are some of the social kinds of influences that people have discussed and, and any kind of evidence to suggest that there might be something there?
2: People have discussed social causes for both men and women. What, For example, one thing that has been brought up a lot is uh, seduction. You become gay because you were seduced by mm-hmm
1: same sex adults yeah, or yeah.
2: something. Yeah. That that actually was a a slogan back in the anti-gay days. Uh I think Anita Bryant who was an infamous anti-gay activist mm. say that uh homosexual people can't reproduce, they have to recruit. <laughs> uh and that hypothesis can't be right for men. I I doubt it's true for women either, but I think it can't be right for men. I I think Males, I, I read the evidence, it's pretty much completely inborn for men. Uh, and the best evidence for that comes from a few cases of a surgical accident or due to uh, a very severe malformation at birth. They were changed into little girls and reared as girls from very early on and followed up into adulthood. And as adults, they were all attracted to women and not to men. And I think if you can't make a male attracted to other males by cutting off his penis and rearing him as a girl, then Mm -hmm. it is pretty much impossible (laughs) to make males sexually attracted to other males by social means anyway. Mm. Females, we know less about. There's not uh, an analogous medical condition uh, or, or a accidental experiment that we can point
1: to. No accidentally non-functioning vaginas turned into penises? (laughs) Right.
2: (laughs) That's right. There's the the seduction hypothesis, which I think has been a very malevolent hypothesis that gets parents upset and wanting them not to have gay teachers and so on. Mm. There's really, uh, I think, no good evidence for that. The best evidence for it has been the finding that the early sexual experiences of homosexual adults were more likely to involve same-sex experiences Mm. than those for straight adults, but duh, you know, I mean, they're attracted to...
1: Chicken or the egg,
2: yes. (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
1: Right. I mean, there is some, I guess, plausibility in the, let's say you're young, maybe pre-puberty or just about puberty, and those gendered preferences may not be super strongly uh, defined, or you just happen to have a same-sex friend that you're playing with, and you have some sort of sexual experience that is pleasurable, and that pleasure is reinforcing in some way, and that kind of puts you on this trajectory towards seeking that out more.
2: Yeah, I I, I think that evolution probably built in strong heterosexual preference so that it was much harder to derail than that. Mm. I'm very pro-gay. Nevertheless, it's time for me to say something that gets some people upset needlessly. Uh, and that is that uh, homosexuality is evolutionarily disadvantageous to the extent that one is having sex Preferentially with members of one's own sex, one is engaging in non fertile sex and
1: not making babies,
2: not making babies. (laughs) And in fact, in traditional societies, let's say male attracted men have almost no babies, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Uh, and it's a fascinating evolutionary paradox how that how they persist. Uh, But nevertheless, that suggests that men's development should be such that heterosexuality is the rule. And it should be very hard to derail that. And that's pretty much how men are. I mean, you know, the vast majority of men are heterosexual, and we don't know how their heterosexual preference is derailed. And again, I mean that evolutionarily and not morally. (laughs) Right, right,
1: right. (laughs) The debate over what causes homosexuality, whether it's social influences like we're just discussing or is some sort of biological influences, is often framed as a choice versus not a choice. Right. And both you and many other people, myself included, have taken issue with this being presented this way. Talk to us about why this is not the right framing.
2: Yeah, the issue of choice has been vexing me for a long time. <laughs> and it, it's just uh, the wrong way to talk about it. Here's why. The reason is that if you examine how we use word, you will, uh, I think, agree that we talk about choosing our behaviors. I choose to go to the store later. I choose to stand up. I choose to raise my right arm. I choose to eat chocolate ice cream rather than vanilla ice cream. Mm-hmm. We never talk about choice, at least correctly, when we're talking about our preferences. We don't say, you know, I choose to prefer chocolate ice cream. I choose to prefer classical music. I choose to prefer living rather than dying. Our preferences are something that we start with. Mm -hmm. Our preferences affect our choices, but we don't choose our preferences. And sexual orientation is a preference. If we are asking about where does sexual orientation come from, do we choose it? If we mean the preference for men or women, no. If we mean having sex with men or women, well, that's behavior. We do choose our behaviors.
1: Sure.
0: Well, I think that's where it gets into definitions, because I think a lot of people confuse preference and choice. They believe, like, oh, I prefer that. They think that's a choice, and I think that's where maybe sometimes people might get confused.
2: Yeah, I think that's right, and there's another kind of way outdated aspect of the whole choice thing, and it has to do with Free will versus determinism, Yeah, depending on what you mean, right. I can say confidently, there's no such thing as free will, uh, in the sense that everything that happens is caused by prior events.
1: So it's in some way predetermined by everything that has preceded yeah. it. Yeah.
2: There's a different sense of... Free will that does exist, and that's the subjective experience of making a choice. So you can't see me, but I just chose to raise my right hand. <laughs> I chose to do that, although I think that it may have been determined that I would do that at the Big Bang.
1: It was certainly determined f- for you to do that by everything that we we're just talking about. So you yes. had to demonstrate that for us. Right?
2: That's right. <laughs> that's right. right.
1: So what is a better way to frame this debate if it's not choice versus not choice?
2: So I think that the debate really is primarily about social causation versus innate causation. Mm. And where social causation uh means one sexual orientation is caused by social experiences including learning and modeling and, and and that kind of thing versus innate is built in. You know, I again I I think for men I'm strongly convinced that it's built in. Now Whether I can say that the case has been proven, I suppose I can't. Mm -hmm. I try to make it as best I can in uh, our long article. That's one of the things that I would bet much more money than I have to bet. (laughs) For women, though, I don't know. uh, And some social influences that have been put forward for women include, for example, romantic situations, uh, women who fall in love with a close friend. Right. Also negative experiences with men? Mm-hmm. I you know that's a stereotype, but I don't think it's crazy that women who've been really mistreated by men,
1: right, uh, or sexually uh, assaulted or something. Yeah, right.
2: yeah, because women they may well have the flexibility to go elsewhere. Mm-hmm.
1: Certainly their bodies seem to have the flexibility to become sexually aroused to both and so you could I guess use that if needed, right, to that's orient right. one way or another.
2: That's right. And
1: that's not to say that, again, I, I always like to point this out and emphasize is not that every single woman who's attracted to women or dating women is going to have these and all of these influences, that she was sexually assaulted or that she had some early sexual right. experiences. Right, all men are assholes, yeah. I don't think, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but for some women, at least this might play a role. Yeah.
0: Hey, Doc, it's funny. You've brought up stereotypes a couple times. It's, oh, I think people are so worried about avoiding stereotypes, but inherently, a lot of the times, they're right.
2: Yeah, that's right. And, and I think especially with respect to sexual orientation, there's nothing wrong with being a feminine man or a masculine woman. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with being a man who likes Broadway musicals mm-hmm. and fashion and so on right. you know I'm straight, but you let me choose between hanging out at a gay bar with a bunch of friends or a straight bar watching sports and watching straight people stare at each other across mm-hmm. the room. I'm going gay every time. <laughs>
1: I, I can prove it. Every conference that we've ever been at, you know, Michael Bailey ends at the gay bar. <laughs> yeah,
2: So there's hope for me yet. Yeah. Yes.
1: <laughs> I want to bring you back to the, the causality debate because what people believe causes sexuality has been shown to be correlated with how they think we should treat homosexuality in our, in our societies.
2: That is right. There's been a tradition, certainly in the past, 50 years of people who are pro-gay believing that it's more inborn and people who are anti-gay thinking that sexual orientation is learned mm. or chosen, let's say. Uh, and that, for the most part, it, it's, it's an empirical fact, but it doesn't really make sense. That's not the way to think about the value of different sexual orientations. Uh, I believe the way we should decide is to think about what the consequences of having different sexual orientations are uh, and what the consequences of trying to restrict people from acting on those sexual orientations are. So uh, my, my view is that homosexuality has no intrinsically bad consequences, and certainly not allowing gay and lesbian people to have gay and lesbian sex is a tremendous burden on their freedom. So, uh, you know, I think that that is the reason why we should be okay uh, with homosexuality, not because it's genetic or whatever.
1: That really doesn't make sense to, to make these moral kind of implications based on what causes it.
2: Yeah, no. I, so, for example, I think that extreme sexual sadism, the kinds of uh, men who become serial killers. Uh, it, extreme sexual sadism is, is a paraphilia, and I strongly suspect that it's inborn, perhaps genetic. I don't know. Very hard to study these things, but mm. um, we wouldn't want to say it's okay to be an extreme <laughs> sexual sadist if Just, we discover a gene for it. Right.
1: <laughs> Just because it's inborn, you're okay. yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're going to let you roam free and uh, enjoy your sexual preference. (laughs) Right. right. We've talked about sexual orientation as attraction to men, women, or both, a relative attraction to men and women. But how about attractions to people whose gender doesn't fall neatly on this binary? How about attraction, the people who have attractions to trans men or trans women or gender non-binary folks? Where does this fit in?
2: Well, the only research that I can talk about is uh, stuff we've done on, uh, so I'll be controversial here because I'll say a a phrase that offends some people, attraction to she-males. They were born male, and they're becoming females, and they still have their penises, and they have breasts. I'm sure your listeners know who she-males are. So
1: trans women with penises.
2: Okay, that's another way of, <laughs> how, of how about that? Term. Yes, how
1: about that term? More
0: politically that's correct, <laughs> yes.
2: Yeah, some men are strongly attracted to them, and it's a it's a very common kind of erotica. And understandably, uh, men with these preferences have wondered what they are, and so have their wives. Uh, <laughs> right. And note that I say wives, because when they're partnered, they're almost always partnered with women, which is revealing. Mm. Uh, and we've found that the attraction to however you want to say that, they show a sexual arousal pattern that is very similar to the sexual
0: arousal pattern of straight men. Well, Doc had a lot of information. You know Not... <laughs> controversial at
1: all Uh, yeah i guess we didn't get to some of the more controversial stuff there's so much to talk about here we get we're just gonna have to have mike bailey back on the show again to talk about some of the more controversial stuff
0: that sounds like a great idea
1: dr mike bailey thank you for being a guest on the science of sex podcast
0: uh my pleasure thank you the science of sex
1: afterglow
0: all right dr jana you're gonna laugh at me but like not in the good way. When I say something super clever, like the when oh, okay. I say when I say dumb stuff. Okay. <laughs> we talk about funding and grants, mm-hmm. but where is this magical money of funding and grants come from? For research? Yes. Well- Basically, like so. What if I had an idea for a study? <laughs> uh huh. Okay. How would I get money for that?
1: Yeah. Th- there are both governmental, non-for-profit, and for-profit kinds of companies and organizations and agencies that could potentially fund research. So some of the bigger grants that come to research organizations like that will come to universities, like if you're a professor at a university and you want to study something, very often you'd go to the National Institute of Health, for example, or the National Science Foundation. So these are big research funding bodies and taxpayers. Some of them taxpayers' money goes to these pools of money okay. that these research organizations then have pretty rigorous processes of deciding who they're going to. So you apply, right? And then they review that and decide whether they give you money or not. Now there are private foundations, research funding bodies okay. that will kind of have like a, a, you know, someone donated a bunch of money mm-hmm. that accrues interest and whatever. And that's what then pays a certain amount of money to, to research. And and then you have companies in sex research. Some research is funded by, say, Trojan. Okay. Right? They have some money for research, they'll fund some research. Or OKCupid okay or uh, Match.com, right? They, because it's in their not just sort of altruistic interest, but in, in their financial interest to learn more about the industry that is relevant to them as opposed to the non-for-profit kinds of organizations that might be interested like in in some of the sex research you have the American Institute of Bisexuality for example. Now they're sort of a non-for-profit kind of institute that had a a certain amount of money donated to them by this bisexuality scholar after he died or before he died.
0: (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever.
1: Uh, Whichever came first, we got it. And then that fund is now being used. So any researcher that has some interest in studying bisexuality of some sort, they will apply to the AIB and they may or may not get some amount of money to study that. But so so for the AIB that's not something that they're making money off of, right? They're, they're not doing, doing it, it because they're doing it because they're just interested in this topic. They have a a general curiosity scientific whatever curiosity or maybe their agenda is to promote accurate information and destigmatize whatever uh, knowledge out there about bisexuality and that is the reason why they're funding as opposed to some of these more for profit kinds of companies that are doing it because it might advance their, their profits.
0: <laughs> the reason I brought up Dr. Jana's is Pornhub. They've announced a $25,000 grant for college sex researchers. Really? What they're going to do is they're going to help out university professors and researchers who supervise student fieldwork. They're calling it the Pornhub Grant for Sexual Wellness, which uh-huh. coincides with the relaunch of the site's Sexual Wellness Center, where users can read hundreds of articles on all aspects of sexual health.
1: Including by Dr. Jana. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So a few, mu- a few months ago, no, at this this point, probably about a year ago, I think they launched this Pornhub wellness part of their site because supposedly they wanted to use it for education and not just entertainment. Yeah. P- people have a lot of conflicting, I think, opinions about that because they feel like Pornhub is an, kind of an evil company and sort of mind geek that is behind Pornhub and many of the other free porn sites is kind of evil because they're not paying their, the actors, their actors, their performers, the directors and all that, they're basically mooching off of all this free content and making a lot of money for themselves. And, and if people are using the porn on Pornhub as sex education, then obviously that's not a very accurate representation yeah. of what sex looks like. But on the other hand, I think they have this huge platform that can reach so many people they can reach so many more people than any kind of sex educator or a school program or whatever and so if they want to use it for something good to educate people on what real sex looks like and how real sex is negotiated and all that then I'm all for it and so I had not heard about this but I think this is good news that they're now willing to spend a tiny, tiny little bit <laughs> oh. of their profits on research as well.
0: Now, do you think universities and colleges these prestigious places of higher learning will want to be involved in a porn hub <laughs> grant?
1: That's a good question, I guess. I mean, I can totally see how there's some stigma associated with yeah. it. Now, in general, you might be thinking about Conflict of interest, right? If like if you have Trojan giving you money to show how amazing condoms are, like that's in a way conflict of interest, and and this is an issue that is relevant to research in general, like all the pharmaceutical companies funding research on their products obviously carries some level of that. But I think that can be avoided. I think Pornhub is funding projects on porn and all the stuff that comes out is like, oh my God, porn is the most amazing thing ever. It doesn't have any negative consequences. Like that would obviously be somewhat suspicious. But if they are funding research on various topics, whatever that the outcome of that research may be, then I certainly think it is possible to do ethical research with money that comes from for-profit companies. Now, the fact that it is a porn website might keep some universities um, away from that. Yeah. Hopefully not. You know, money is money. And unless that money is given to you under these unethical kind of pretenses that you have to find something good about porn yeah. right that as long as that's the case i hope that people will take the money and use them for good research
0: all right well applicants must apply by may 1st and provide details about the project including its objective and expected research methods that's all right. that's your basic grant right there sure. huh sure
1: yeah man yeah, that sounds pretty Straightforward. College students everywhere interested in sex research. Here's your chance.
0: Go for it. You could be the next Dr. Jana You could have your own podcast <laughs> one day with a handsome radio personality. <laughs> it could happen to you, kids. Uh, all right, all right. <clears throat> what, what? Oh, was that oh, I wasn't talking about myself. Oh no. No. Oh, but we should see. get going. Speaking of the podcast. Dr. Johnny, you were amazing today. Thank you. So nice to hear. We'll do it again next time. See you. Bye. <laughs> Science of Sex is produced in New York City. To connect with the hosts, go to drjana.com and joepardavila.com. Like us on Facebook at The Science of Sex Podcast or follow us on Twitter at Science of Sex Pod. For more sex science, read Dr. Jana's column at Forbes.com. This has been The Science of Sex.